This episode was recorded before April 1st, 2022, when Danielle Smith announced her candidacy for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. And it, trans- it transcends dairy, right? It, it, this is in, it, it's in beef, it's in poultry, it's, you know, with the exception of money and banking, there's probably no other sector in Canada that has as much regulatory oversight as agriculture and agri-food. Well, hello. Welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm Danielle Smith, president of Alberta Enterprise Group. My guest today is associate professor of economics at the University of Lethbridge and senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, Danny Leroy. Danny, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am entering this conversation with some trepidation because I know that the dairy lobby is one of the fiercest lobby groups and the most effective lobby groups in the country. So anytime you talk about supply management, you're always bound to get some negative feedback. So I want to I want to turn to this conversation because I think part of the, the challenge in talking about supply management is that it's uh, the products that are under supply management go so below the radar of most consumers' awareness that it's hard to even think about, well, what's the problem here? I go to the grocery store and all of the product is on the shelf and it seems like it's a reasonable price. What's the problem? So you're going to have to walk us through bit by bit because it doesn't. I don't see a huge consumer push to change supply management. I certainly don't see a huge producer push to, to change supply management. So why do you care so much about this issue? Why do you think that this is an issue we've got to deal with urgently? Well, it's uh, it's an issue that uh, has preoccupied economists for a long period of time, um, because in part it's uh, uh, it affords an opportunity to identify and delineate, and where possible, quantify the consequences of interfering in market processes, right? And and part of the justification for supply management programs in Canada for raw milk and for chicken and eggs and turkey and broiler hatching eggs, which are the uh, eggs that are fertilized and then sent to hatcheries uh, that eventually become little chicks that are fed out. Um, These are the five commodities in in Canada that uh, are under supply management. Um, The most, um, I suppose the one with the longest history is, is in raw milk. And that can be traced back uh, to the end of the uh, uh, 19th century, actually, when the federal government first got involved uh, in the production and marketing of milk when they established the dairy branch in in 1890. Uh, And the point of the uh, dairy branch was to uh, provide information to raw milk producers about how they could better feed their livestock. Um, uh, and uh, improvements with respect to uh, the, 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 the marketing of uh, and home production of things like cheese and butter, right? So it's very innocuous um, and, and it's morphed from that to a lot of oversight from 
all the way from the farm gate ultimately to the final consumer. Well, and can, part you, of this look, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Because it almost sounds like it began as an industry association, just giving helpful tips to members of the industry. How did it turn into, um, we'll talk about raw milk since it's got the longest history. How did it turn into an industry from an industry association into the type of regulated industry that now restricts the amount that producers can produce and you have to have a quota in order to produce it. And there's punishment if you go outside your quota. How did we, how, what is the transformation of how that? Well, occurred? I think that again, the transformation can is almost coincident with the, the commercialization of dairy farming in Canada, right? So um, uh, in 1890, most of what was produced on a farm was consumed on the farm and any surplus production was sold. And uh, there was some difficulty marketing this uh, when uh, the McKinley high tariffs were put in place in, in the 1890s um, and alternative markets had to be found. And a problem was the, the variation in quality of the of dairy products that, uh, that were produced. Now, uh, as ag dairy farming went from being a uh, focused on satisfying the wants of the, of the family farm to being focused on producing for uh, as a as a as a source of revenue as a business enterprise, that's when uh, as that happened, uh, government involvement became uh, became greater and greater. And I think the uh, the at least the current incarnation of uh, of our supply managed boards and in, in for commodities in Canada can be traced to the period after the Second World War, uh, where there was a lot of variability in farm prices and farm incomes and uh, dairy farming uh, tended to take place in areas where there were relatively few alternatives, as I understood it. So when prices were good, uh, these farms did very well. And when they weren't, they, they, um, there were some financial difficulties. Mm. So this variability of prices and income over time were very problematic. Um, and uh, a lot of the ad hoc programs that were put in place in the 1950s were directed to uh, resolving or trying to mitigate the problem for, for, for dairy producers. And ultimately, this is what led to this, the creation of the Canadian Dairy Commission in 1966, that the problems in, with the production and, and milk marketing of raw milk were peculiar were, were to that commodity, and it didn't extend to uh, the others. However, when the, um, uh, the national program was put in place in 1971 for, for dairy that, that, con that controlled the level of production at the, at the farm gate, uh, aimed uh, to uh, influence the price that farmers received, so it stabilized prices, stabilized incomes. And this uh, program was uh, subsequently adopted for other commodities like eggs, chicken, turkey, and finally broiler hatching eggs in 1986. So, so let me go back to raw milk because you started off by saying that because of some of the unique characteristics that were happening with the dairy farmers, yeah. it is is milk a unique commodity? Is is that one that you can make the argument that there should be a carve out? Because one of the things that you often will hear is that uh, we sh because it is a product that spoils, it makes sense to produce it close to market. And so why wouldn't you uh, try to make sure that you you had a healthy, vibrant, robust group of dairy farmers who were able to, to, to serve that that local demand? Is there is there an argument there that milk is a bit of a different commodity? Well, it, every commodity is unique in its own way, right? Every, every, has, every commodity has this particular um, various end uses to which it can be put. And some, sometimes there's substitutes available, other times not. Um, whether raw milk is is sufficiently unique to have its own uh, 
production and, and, and marketing um, system is, uh, I suppose, a, a, a question that's open to debate. We're the Canada's one of might be the only country left in the world that has supply management for for raw milk. Um, uh, so there, are, but there are great examples of other commodities that are perhaps even more perishable than than raw milk. Uh, I like using the example of fresh cut flowers. Now I can't, <laughs> I can't conceive of something that's more perishable than a fresh cut flower, right? The, it's it's dying as soon as you cut it, and um, uh, there's a tremendous market for a global market for fresh cut flowers, right? There's 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 flowers that are that are grown in Malaysia, that's grown in 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 in, in Chile and South America and Ecuador, that 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 uh, are are put on planes. And uh, sold at the at the at the tulip auction in Amsterdam, right? Mm. And the and these producers who are loading these planes, who are producing these flowers, don't know ultimately what price they're going to receive until the gavel <laughs> hits the hits the uh, hits the table and the flowers are sold, right? So um, that that somehow that milk is unique and it requires a, a special legal framework to have uh, orderly uh, production and marketing. Um, I'm not sure that stands up to uh, okay. careful scrutiny. Let me, I'm going to keep another stab at it because as I mentioned, I've been lobbied pretty hard by the dairy producers over the years. So I'm just trying to bring forward their arguments to see what your response would be. So perhaps the difference between a perishable product like flowers versus perishable product like raw milk is that it's for human consumption. And so there is a risk, I suppose, on the pricing side, but isn't there also a food safety risk? Does that put it in a separate category? Uh, again, one of the peculiar things about uh, um, the, the system in Canada is that uh, the, the commercial, uh, excuse me, the, the retail sale of raw milk is prohibited, right? On the, on the grounds of food safety, mm. right? The, 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 it's, a, it's a vector for, for transmitting foodborne disease. Um, there are 13 states in the United States which uh, abut the, the Canadian border, and in 12 of those states, people can legally buy raw milk. Hmm. Um, in Europe, it can be had from a vending machine in some countries. So the argument that we need that a special regulatory framework is necessary to ensure that a product safety, again, I'm not sure it stands up to careful scrutiny. They've managed to figure it out in other jurisdictions. I They've managed to figure that. it out, you know, and <laughs> even the even the queen, she, I understand she drinks raw milk every day. Tell me what raw milk is like. What is what is so unique? Because that's not a term that I I normally use, and since I can't buy it, I normally when I when I have had to purchase milk, I just buy it in the four yeah. liter jug. And so, what is what can raw milk be used for? Is it is it because it's a product that is can oh, well, be differentiated into multiple streams? Well, it, it it and this is how it's a it's a it's a, raw milk is a commodity that's that's priced on the basis of its component constituents, so the the butter fat in the milk and the protein in the milk and the solids, other non-fat solids in the milk, and depending on uh, the end use of that raw milk, the provincial milk marketing boards assign different prices to it depending on whether that raw milk is being used to make butter or skim milk powder or cheese or ice cream or the fluid milks that, that you just described. So uh, uh, the, the, the retail goods that, that like your, your four liter jug of milk that you buy, that's been, that's been transported and processed and, and homogenized so that uh, the consistency is, uh, is, uh, is there, right? So every, every time you buy four liters of three and, and a quarter percent milk, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a homogeneous standardized good. Um, raw milk on the farm isn't. 
right? Mm -hmm. Every dairy cow produces a, a, a quality of milk that's, uh, that's different from uh, uh, another dairy cow breeds, different dairy breeds. A, a Holstein produces a, a, a raw milk that's, that's easily distinguishable from a Guernsey or an Ayrshire. Um, um, uh, so, so the, the difference between a, let's say raw milk, and I, as a kid, I used to drink gallons of this stuff, um, is that, uh, you know, the, the cream floats to the top. And uh, of course you never see that in the, in the grocery store because the, the product has been homogenized and it's been purposely processed. So that doesn't happen. And the difference also is that, uh, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the fat content is higher in raw milk than it is in, in, the, in, the, in the milk that you buy in a grocery store. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an easily distinguishable product. But is there also a danger for more foodborne illness from raw milk? Uh, there is, but that's really beyond my purview. I'm an, I'm an ag economist. I'm not a food scientist. And, and uh, I'll leave it to the food scientist to, uh, to explain the extent to which uh, uh, raw milk is a vector for foodborne disease. The only reason I raise it is because I get the sense that in Canada's heavily bureaucratized state, that safety, 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 safety is always used as a pretext for excessive regulation. And so I just wanted to see if if that's the argument that can that can be made. Is the is the is the safety aspect on allowing people to consume raw milk so high that it would be a non-starter to even bring it up I with don't, regulators. I don't know. You could ask you could ask that question to the buyers of raw milk all over the planet outside mm -hmm. of this country. You know, Again. to what extent is safety an issue and how how is how is how is your safety being assured? Right? So the the question really is, you know, it's not that there's that it's safe or it's unsafe. Who's going to ensure the safety of the product? Right? Is it is it a is it a regulatory body? Is it a is it a, a, a government agency, or can the private can somebody in the private sector do that? Can somebody, for example, let's say, why, why doesn't Underwriters Laboratory ensure the safety of our of our raw milk? It ensures the safety of my hockey helmet. It's a good point. Okay, <laughs> let me then ask the other question because you'd mentioned that because there's such differentiation between raw milk, is that an argument for why you would need to have a, a regulated system? Because we also have government consumer protection laws, so that you have oh, to make absolutely. sure. And yeah, so, and, and it trans it transcends dairy, right? It this is in it, it's in beef, it's in poultry, it's you know, with the exception of money and banking, there's probably no other sector in Canada that has as much regulatory oversight as agriculture and agri-food. So again, I don't think, uh, in fairness to the people who are involved here, uh, that, that, that somehow there's something singular about uh, mm. uh, raw milk, right? It, 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 food safety, is a, it, it transcends uh, all primary production processing. And you can also figure out methods of grading in a non-supply management. So, so having methods of grading and consistency of product does not require us to maintain a supply management system. As we've been talking, been yep. thinking about, about grains, for instance, there's all kinds of right. ways that you have differentiated products that have to be uh, normalized so that the shipment is consistent. So and, this and is not unusual, right? It's not unusual. And, and, and just to bring that point a little bit further, it's it's not the it's not the primary producers that drive this. It's not the processors that drive this. It's final consumers who drive mm -hmm. this. It is the purchasing pattern of you and I, other people, regardless of where we're located on the planet, that ultimately send price signals back to everybody throughout the marketing channel, telling them what to produce, how to produce, when to produce, using what inputs, how often, <laughs> and ultimately at a price that hopefully covers their cost of production and generates a return for them. 
Okay, let, let's talk through a couple of the others because it's sort of interesting that you have this long history in raw milk and thanks for explaining all of the ways in which it's differentiated and why. But then we also had a, a flurry of additional supply managed industries that were added on. So 71 milk, 72 eggs, 1973 turkey, 1978 chicken, and then sort of a late outlier, 1986 broiler hatching eggs. So what, what, tell me the, tell me the, uh, the, what the argument was at the time about why it is those industries should have also been supply management, uh, supply managed. Well, I, again, it's, it was, uh, it's, uh, it, it, uh, restricting the quantity supplied at the farm level through quotas enables, uh, um, prices in the marketplace to be higher than they would be otherwise, right? There are, the, the, the market is artificially shorted. There's a, there's a scarcity that's purposefully created, right? So at providing a income assistance and income stabilization to these producer groups, supply management does a fantastic job at that. It doesn't, it doesn't require a, a direct taxpayer transfer, right? But there is a very clear transfer from consumers to uh, to primary producers. Um, so I think part of the appeal was uh, the fact that uh, assistance could be provided, at least from my perspective, assistance could be provided uh, through this mechanism that uh, had no, um, uh, at least in the, in the poultry, eggs, and, and, uh, and turkey, there no direct taxpayer transfers or subsidies paid, right? You, but this wasn't the case in the, with raw milk. For years and years and years, there was a direct subsidy of $6.03 a hectoliter paid to producers of industrial milk. And that's milk that's used for ice cream and butter and skim milk powder. And ultimately, that was, that was a, um, ended in 2002 as, for budgetary reasons. <laughs> it almost um, seems like, you know what, all of these products that we're talking about, it almost seems like it's a bit outdated, that it's solving a problem that might have existed in the past, whether that was the consolidation of the family farm. Now that we're so urbanized, it seems all, it seems like a, a strange anachronistic argument. But also, you know, my grandfather used to deliver milk. And I, I think there was a time where you literally had an ice box, where you had to buy an, a box with a, a, and an ice block to, to refrigerate. So our refrigeration technology has improved pretty dramatically in the last 50 years as well. I'm just trying to put this conversation from the 1970s in, in, in perspective. Were, were those a couple of the factors at the time? Or was it, it just seems strange that you'd be able to make an argument to the public, we're going to benefit the producers, we're going to restrict the but, supply, and you're going but, to play, pay more, and everybody would have bought into that. But, but, but here's the thing, and you, we, met, we talked about this beforehand, right? So the impact on the consumer's margin, it's small, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it's at, at 25 cents or 35 cents on a on a gallon of milk that you pay more because of supply management. No, no consumer or very few consumers are going to get into a twist about that. And they're, they're not going to drive their trucks to Parliament Hill and, and put on a big rally. But so there's there's diffuse costs and there's tremendous benefit to a to a to a to a, to a special interest, uh, quite frankly. And um, uh, they have all kinds of incentives to, to protect this. And uh, Getting back to um, uh, why this was put in place in the 1970s, a, an important thing to remember is that the demand for for raw milk and for chicken and for eggs uh, and turkeys is uh, is what it, 
is what we call, in, at least in economic science, these are goods whose price, own price elasticity of demand is price inelastic. Hmm. Okay? This means that, um, that uh, the quantity demanded by consumers is not going to fall by very much as the price increases. Okay, so people need to buy, they, <laughs> they, need, they want milk, they need milk. What else are you going to put on your cereal in the morning? Right. Um, uh, so the, the consequence is that uh, because of the, the, the price elasticity, the own price elasticity demand, it's possible to uh, to raise the price and reduce the quantities supplied and demanded and generate a large return. Without the consumer even noticing. I, I without, did look at without the consumer noticing too much now and, and, and we, because i want to i want to get to the numbers but i do i do want to just sort of set a baseline because it might be a while since people looked really closely at the if that's the case you know that people are really kind of price insensitive to it they might not be able to immediately recall how much did i pay for that four liter jug of milk so i looked it up and you know what's so interesting in looking it up the first ad that i'm looking at on my flip app is choose 100% Canadian quality milk brought to you by the Dairy Farmers of Canada quality milk. They're in the middle of a massive advertising yeah. campaign. I'm sure you have some thoughts on why that is, but 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 let me just uh, put the prices out so people know. So uh, on my app, I'm looking at, and I'm in Alberta, so four liter uh, jug of milk, 4.95. My eggs, when we go to purchase them, they range from 23 cents to 26 cents a piece. So about 2.99 for a dozen. Butter, butter's always bothered me. That one's a big, a big hit. Three dollars and forty nine cents a pound. I wasn't able to look up chicken, but I'm sort of getting accustomed to the price of meat, especially with some of the supply chain problems that we've had uh, escalating a little bit. But you know, you said something that was so interesting, which was, "What are you going to put put on your cereal?" And it seems to me there has been a lot of alternatives that have developed in the last number of years, like almond milk or coconut milk and tofu cheeses, mm -hmm. and so um, and even sort of uh, um, meats and and um, and sausages that are made with alternative vegetable products as well. I wonder if that changes the discussion completely, that they are so heavily under pressure well, with competition. Well, it, here's the thing about supply management. There are both intended and unintended consequences, right? Oh, yeah. And among the unintended consequences is that if, you rate, if, if consumer prices go up, um, like, consumers aren't beholden. Mm-hmm to dairy producers they're not beholden to poultry producers or egg producers in this country at some at some price under some circumstances people are going to search for substitutes and as we become more wealthy uh the ability to do this increases right so it's no wonder that that uh, there's all kinds of advertising about uh, the importance of a hundred percent dairy at, at this time of year when people tend to use a lot of cream and and uh, and cheese and so on and in, in preparing for uh, the Christmas holiday that now one of the things one of the things that 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 astounded me I'm all I'm I'm broadcasting from my office here in in, in southern Alberta and I went to the, one of the stores here the other day and I was astounded I, I had to pick up a, a product for a friend of mine who said I, I want to buy some oat milk oh, that sounds interesting so I, I went into this big box store and bought the oat milk the oat milk has two ingredients, oats and water. And it can, <laughs> That's pretty and simple. It, and, it, and it comes in it comes in a big box, like it's a it's like a six liter box of oat milk, and it's an imported product. It comes from Spain. How is it possible that Spanish oat growers are able to outcompete 
Canadians in the Prairie region producing a product that's, that's, that's wild. So I'd love to know your conclusion on that. I mean, I suppose in some ways you'd look at that and say, see, the market works. The market, the market works, right? So what is it the consumers want? That they're willing to pay a premium for uh, whatever their tastes and preferences are, right? Yeah. And uh, to the extent that uh, traditional dairy products either become more expensive or they have some PR problems that, <laughs> that have arisen here in the last few months, um, you know, people... Pe People do choose uh, and they vote with their wallet. So, you know, that is, I think, part of the reason as well that it becomes difficult to get a consumer movement going to try to address the problem of supply management. Because I bet if you looked at some of those alternative pro uh, products, they probably all sell at a premium to what the dairy products sell it. So you might make the argument, see, supply management is working, even though it's providing mm -hmm. a secure supply of income for the producers, it's also not pricing the the products out of the reach of most yeah. consumers and, it, and it's a real it's a it's a real peculiar situation because uh within the last five years raw milk production in canada has actually gone up and it's gone up a lot from nine from 2016 to today it's gone up about 20 percent it used to be the case that the producers in canada produced about uh, 7 billion to 8 billion liters of raw milk a year uh, this year, we're going to close in on 9.4 billion. Wow. So um, even though that, you know, there's there's more substitutability going on in, in terms of uh, consumer products that are available uh, in Canada, uh, the amount that's the, the amount of raw milk that's produced is actually going up. OK, so I need you to explain then a little more about how this quota system works, because I wouldn't have expected that. Because if the whole notion is to try to restrict the amount of supply so that you increase prices, I wouldn't expect that kind of dramatic growth over such a short period of time. So in some ways, is it the fact that because the there's so much to be gained from additional production that supply management is having to adjust and, and not really meet its original goal, which oh, was it, to restrict, it, well, restrict still, supply. Two, a couple of things, right? So um, when it, the the uh, legally the the production quota is the property of the milk the provincial milk marketing board mm -hmm. which enables them to increase or reduce on a on a on a on a uniform basis across producers if there is a need to increase the quantity supplied or or to reduce it right the the, the reason why they're able to do that without uh, a legal repercussion is that the marketing board owns it <laughs> so so they can increase how much uh, each individual producer uh, uh, can produce is a, is illegally allowed to produce and sell into a protected market. Now, one of the things that we we are seeing is that uh, the, uh, the 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 willingness of of primary producers to pay for the privilege of producing and selling into an insulated market is very lucrative. Right in in, in Alberta right now, the the quota for the, roughly that it would enable a, a primary producer to produce and sell the output of one cow. Is about forty six thousand dollars. Wow! Right? And what, what? How does that compare? It, because this, we'll, we'll have to get into some of the details of the market. Because you said this, that surprised me. Is that the the uh, the the quota is essentially owned by the marketing board, board, but each each producer has They're, to pay a price in order to, to participate. To get it. it's, it's like well, it's a license to produce, right? <laughs> That's so, a pretty remarkable. I mean, that's where the inflation has been. So forty six thousand in Alberta is it 40, the same? 
It, well, in other provinces, because uh, prices increased so dramatically, they've actually fixed the price. So in, in Eastern Canada, the, the, the price of, uh, of dairy quota, of, of raw milk quota is, uh, is 20, about $24,000 a, a kilogram, which is roughly the output of a, a single Holstein cow. And it's fixed, right? So what are the consequences of fixing a price? <laughs> well, the quantity demanded of quota exceeds the quantity supplied. So there's always a lot more demanded every month through the auction than, than what's sold. And the gains from selling into that insulated market are capitalized in other assets. You know, it's, no, it's no surprise that, that uh, dairy producers are, are willing to pay large hmm. amounts for, for fixed assets like land and buildings and, and other capital equipment, right? That it goes somewhere. Give me an idea of, of the of the consequence, because there's a difference in the market in Alberta versus Quebec, and I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around that. And I don't know if it's because Quebec has more quota and therefore they're able to produce more product that then gets um, purchased and sent to the rest of the of the country. And if that's a problem or if it's that there's smaller farms, so they need to be supported in a different way. Whereas in Alberta, we've expanded and we're a bit more efficient. Give me your sense of even under this, what looks like a uniform system, how it's created differences well, well, from one region to the next. It's certainly it's certainly not uniform. So uh, the, the market for raw milk is, uh, is uh, distinguished into two separate categories. One is um, uh, milk, raw milk that's used for fluid purposes. So this is things like uh, the, the four gallon jug that you were talking about a moment ago and the, and the one liter container of cream and so on. So it's the fluid market. Um, and the, the second market is, for, is industrial milk. And this is raw milk that's used for ice cream and butter and cheese and, and skim milk powder and, 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 and manufactured products. And historically, Quebec has had uh, the lion's share of the market for, the, for industrial milk, for the legal right to produce it, which is why when you go into a grocery store here, Danielle, and you look at the fancy cheeses, they're, they're, and they're fantastic. They are very good. They, they're all coming from Quebec. Right, a lot of these, a lot of their their manufactured Quebec and shipped out here because that's that's where the the, the production and the processing activities are. Um, in and Ontario also has a large share of the of the of uh, the industrial milk market that's that's controlled and regulated nationally. Alberta has a smaller share, but what's happened over time is that uh, the allocation of of uh, of, of of quota has has evolved as populations have changed throughout the country since the 1970s. So in areas where there has been an increase in, in population, like in Alberta and British Columbia, um, uh, these are these are two provinces for which uh, the the amount of raw milk that's legally produced here has increased over time to satisfy the 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 the, the needs of uh, of consumers in those two provinces. But does it match our population? Do we have the equivalent amount? Because if you're if the argument's going to be that you want to support your local producers so that you can have a vibrant local market to feed local consumer consumers, it seemed to me that there should be a match that we'd be able to produce everything that we need in Alberta well, rather than importing added, it from well, Quebec. I, you know, there's I'm sure that any dairy producer in Alberta that's that's listening to the this podcast. Uh, you know, they would love to have more of the industrial milk <laughs> allocation uh, to, redirected from producers in Quebec to uh, those in Alberta. Likewise, uh, the individuals who are producing raw milk in, in Quebec, you know, they, they are very happy with the, with the, the way the, the, the allocation is currently structured. So 
and again, it, this gets back to the consequences of, of regulating the marketplace, right? It, it, it creates uh, very identifiable uh, groups that gain, the groups that lose, um, and it creates um, impediments to uh, expanding uh, business as those business owners see fit in response to the, to the opportunities that they witness about them. And, uh, um, and producers of, of, of raw milk and other geopolitical jurisdictions don't face that constraint. And it's, it's sort of interesting to me that you don't see more of a producer movement to try to change the system. I'm, I'm wondering what Alberta benefits from, what Alberta producers well, benefit from by being in well, the system. Well, here you need, one of the, one of the most important things that I learned uh, studying economics um, and it's not, is that we need to remember the people involved. Mm. Economics is about people. It's about you and I, it's about the choices we make <clears throat> under conditions of scarcity and uncertainty and the consequences of those decisions. And the consequences of those decisions are place, time, circumstance, and individual specific. So, um, you know, if you put yourself in, in the place of a, a raw milk producer, uh, in, in, in Lacombe, for example, um, right? Uh, he, he's, he's invested in, in his business. He's probably purchased quota over, over years and years and years. Um, and, um, uh, he, and he's made these choices because he perceives that the benefit to him of this, the, the present value of this, this income stream is is worth more than the than the than the price of the quota. So I buy it and I expand my business. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, that's a valuable asset that's built up over time, and um, it's a nest egg for many of these uh, for many of these um, supply managed producers. And it's not just in raw milk; it, it it transcends all the supply managed industries. And and you know the value of quota across all five commodity groups. It uh, the number is always changing, but it's always going up, right? So it's 35 billion, 40 billion dollars uh, held by, uh, you know, maybe 12,000 supply managed producers. That's a big number. So it's one it of those big, things. It's yeah. a big number and it's a big problem, right? So many consumers in Canada aren't going to get in a twist over uh, paying a little bit more for cheese, paying a little bit more for chicken. <laughs> you might be, you know, you have to pay more for chicken or butter. It might upset you a little bit more, but still you're not going to be, you don't have the same incentive that somebody who has four or five billion million dollars tied up in a, in a, in a non-productive asset on your business. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and I should and that's, mention and that's at risk. Well, and I just mentioned to, to you off the air as well that because we have a restaurant, we, we tend to buy a lot of cheese and butter yeah. and milk. And so as I'm sort of figuring out whether we need to increase our prices, that's going to be one of the factors that we consider. But I but that, I guess, is part of the, the issue is um, so we've got producers who, for very good reasons that you describe, don't want to upset the apple cart, want to keep it is because they've got a huge investment that they've made. You've got consumers that are not really noticing the difference between paying an extra 25 or 35 cents. And so, but there is a real cost. And I know that that's been quantified by some of your colleagues as well, because I think we're so wealthy as a society that we forget that some, that these types of programs have the biggest impact on those at the lowest end of the income scale. Can you elaborate on that a yeah, bit? Yeah, sure. Your so, so um, uh, uh, Ryan Cardwell, I think a few years ago, he um, 
he published a, a paper with some of his colleagues that that famously pointed out that uh, supply management, I think, cost the, the typical family four in Canada about $340 more a year than would be the case in the absence of supply management. Um, and it, your, your, your point is, a, and, it, and it, it caused a lot of controversy because controversy, $340 is, is money that could have been used to purchase other goods and services mm -hmm. sold by other businesses who now do without those sales, right? So it's very easy to, to distinguish the seen and the unseen. What we see mm -hmm. is this, this family spending money in the, in the, in the, in the dairy counter, and, but we don't see the sales that the $340 could have made in, in another area. Now, most people, they don't recognize this because how often do you travel outside of the country, especially now, how often do you travel outside of the country and you walk into a store and you buy four liters of milk or you buy a, 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 a lot of cheese, right? We, we, we don't, right? We, 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 we're simply, we're, we're innocently uninformed. Yeah. And, um, um, but what we do know when it, when it does hit home is, uh, you know, when, whenever you do cross the border and uh, it, I, with the, the Canada US free, the, uh, the USMCA, the new one, it's actually one of, the, one of the key things there was that it increased the amount of, uh, of uh, dairy products that could come into this country duty free without having to declare it, right? If you import dairy products, you actually need an import permit, just like a handgun or <laughs> firearms. You need, a, you need an authorization to permit it uh, to, to import a, a commercial amount. Um, so uh, if you have less than $120, yeah, you go down there, you buy some of your butter and your chicken, so you can come back, no problem. But for elsewhere in the world, it's only 20 bucks. You, you that, know, I was, I, I was in Argentina a few years ago yeah. and uh, we were down there and one of the wonderful products they have is called a Dutcha de Leche, which is basically it's a caramelized milk product and you put it on bread and toast. It's fantastic, uh, but it's a it's a milk product. So whenever we came to, to the airport, and we had things to declare. Well, here's this uh, <laughs> here's this milk product. OK, that's got to that's got to be uh, left here that you are not. You couldn't even bring it in. It's not the it matter. Was more, even... It was worth more than twenty bucks. Oh my gosh! Okay, you have to also talk about this <laughs> because I had not stuff like this, right? I had not considered this factor that there is a thriving market for smuggling in in these kinds of supply managed products. You you, you had a background paper that you sent me over that gave a couple of examples, and I have to say, I just shook my head thinking I never even would have occurred to me that people would bring back contraband. Genes. But you, but but the, here's the point, right? Um, how often? When you're on an airplane, you're not going to stuff your bag full of cheese, but you'll put a bunch of cheese in your camping trailer. Yeah. <laughs> you'll load up on the butter in your Winnebago. <laughs> you're going across and uh, most people don't declare that. And, and, and my goodness, I know lots of people that do things like this, you know, Remarkable. If, we're go if we're going down, what are we going to buy? And what are we going to buy across the border? Well, we're going to buy some liquor. We're going to buy some cigarettes and let's load up on the cheese and the butter. So is it because of price alone or is it because there's differentiated products when you allow for more competition? Well, here's the, th and that's something that's person, place and circumstance specific, right? For some people, maybe they do have a preference for a particular product that isn't available in Canada. Okay. Well, that's, that's unique to that individual. Uh, another case might be it's a, it's a homogeneous product. It's a standard product and I can get it a lot cheaper, right? Both of those things happen, Danielle. Right, it, it, it's it. Beauty value is in the eye of the beholder, 
right? And, and what motivates somebody to, to stock up on cheese or butter or, or, or gallons of milk is, is uh, it's an outworking of their tastes and preferences in view of the alternatives available to them, right? And, and uh, um, for a lot of people, that cross the cross the border. That's uh, this is this is one way of satisfying that demand. That's uh, just beyond the purview of authority. Right? It's remarkable. Okay, so let me just see if there's any nuances that we need to discuss. In the I I I assume that we're talking about raw milk mostly because it's the largest part of the market, the largest value, the largest quota. And it's the longest serving uh, type of quota system. But, but but if I'm mistaken on that, there's some nuances in the other markets that we need to understand. Maybe you can tell me about that. Chicken, turkey, eggs, and broiler hatching eggs. What 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 are the what are the reasons why we should be taking a closer look at those ones too? Does it rec well, replicate what we're talking about here? Well, uh, yes. Although uh, the the circumstance is a little bit different. Uh, okay. and, and the difference is this that. Uh, it's possible for uh, uh, a hobbyist to have a small flock of chickens and sell chicken meat. It's possible for somebody to have a small flock of turkeys and sell turkeys or eggs, right? All, all this is permissible. And this is why you see vendors at a, at a farmer's market mm -hmm. selling eggs and, and chicken and so on. They're, they, they're um, a what's the right term, sub-commercial, like industrial enterprise. Let me put um, some numbers around that because you've got them for Ontario and I don't know if this is similar across the country, but you said, I think that in Ontario, you're allowed to have 300 chickens. Um, you're allowed to have 50 turkeys um, uh, or under, shall I yeah. say. Um, and you're allowed to have 99, I think, of the laying hens. So that allows you for, I, I don't know how many eggs you'd be able to produce yeah. out of that. So that seems like you could make a nice little business out yeah, of it. A little, little side business. Keep a teenager out of trouble. Here, <laughs> operate this, sell this. Um, but the exception is raw milk. It's Weird. the only of the, it's the only commodity where the, where 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 private sell sale is illegal. The only legal buyer is the milk marketing board in each province. Uh, so there's no scope at all for uh, for uh, legal small scale production. Which just because it's illegal doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But there's there's there are restrictions and consequences for. Um, uh, that pertain to, to raw milk that don't exist in the other supply managed. So interesting. And that, and that's the consistent across every province. There's no province that allows for some kind of exemption Zero. just for that hobby Zero. farmer. Why not? That's odd. That seems like a strange outlier. Uh, well, uh, part of it has to do with controlling the supply, right? Mm -hmm. When you, the, in the context of how much poultry is produced and the eggs that are produced and the turkeys that are produced, right? The, um, the, the costs of regulating that and limiting it to zero uh, is, uh, is, is much greater than the, the benefit conferred to large-scale producers. But to control the, the sale of raw milk, you, you mentioned the food safety issue earlier that's been used time and again to, 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 um, uh, to limit that. Um, uh, you know, the, there's, there's no opportunity for, for, uh, for a small producer to sell any of it. Let's talk about the um, the way in which they control this market. Because you mentioned first the marketing boards set the amount you're allowed to produce. 
they also have limitations on how much you can use for a hobby farm, a hobbyist farmer in some yeah. commodities, but not in milk. You just mentioned that. Yeah. But there's also this other aspect of having stiff tariffs on imports. I think you made reference to that with your uh, Dolce de Leche example. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, <laughs> but, but, but give us those those numbers, because when you told me, I thought maybe there was a missing percentage, uh, you know, decimal point, because these no, seem to no, be no, pretty no, huge. It the 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 import taxes on individuals because it you know butter doesn't pay a tax and 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 sugar or and uh, 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 cheese doesn't pay it's people who pay are compelled to pay taxes right so no matter no matter how hard i try i can't make a pound of butter pay a tax but i can i can compel somebody who claims ownership over the butter to pay the tax anyhow um the, the import taxes on 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 final products for for consumers uh, for for supply managed commodities range from 150 percent to over almost 300 percent for butter, which is why when you go into the grocery store, and uh, it's 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 it, it, again you're not going to this won't strike any anybody here until you you think about it, but you never see any butter from the United States. Mm -hmm. We don't see any butter from Idaho here. We don't see any butter from Minnesota. You'd think you'd see some butter from, from Wisconsin somewhere in Ontario or some cheese from Wisconsin. <laughs> Not there. How come? And the reason is that in order to import this these goods, uh, an importer has to get a permit if they're importing a large quantity. And they uh, it has to be approved, and they've got to pay they've got to pay a, a very large import tax. And, so let, let me and the reality you. is, and the reality yeah. is that you can't do this economically. So let, let me ask you because the implication would be that if you have, and I've got this written down, two hundred ninety eight percent tariff if you on butter products, that almost implies then that we're charging three times as much for butter as you would in Wisconsin or Idaho. Is it, does it translate directly? And why do they well, set these tariffs so high? Well, if that's, if, if that's the reference price, you know, the, 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 there's all kinds of market manipulation in the, in the dairy industry in the United States, which could be the focus of another conversation here. Um, uh, but, uh, the, the, the world price is much less and that's the benchmark, oh. right? So it's, it's from the most capable exporter. That's where the source of potential supply would come from. So, who's the most capable uh, exporter in our case? I assumed it would all be well, from the United States. Well, I, I, off the top of my head, I, I wouldn't know who those those producers are, but I, I would suspect that uh, uh, individuals in uh, in Australia, New Zealand, they could probably get butter here pretty cheap. They can huh. they can get that New Zealand spring lamb here that outcompetes locally produced lamb. They're on the other side of the planet. How is it possible? Well, and it'd be the same mechanism because, you know, I, I, I think dairy producers have said to me, there's a complexity in trying to make sure that milk and these other products don't spoil as you transport them. But uh, as you, we pointed out, there's all kinds of products there's, that, there's, that manage to get around kind, that. There's all kinds of products and there's all kinds of marketing arrangements, right? So, um, uh, one of the things that we it used, one of the, the problems that uh, that uh, spawned supply management was uh, actually in the 1930s when uh, there were simply gentlemen's agreements between primary producers and processors. So it was basically on a handshake. I'm I'm selling uh, grade A milk or, or grade B milk milk for for fluid or, or milk for industrial, done on the basis of a handshake. And one of the consequences of the Great Depression was that uh, these handshake deals all fell apart, and prices collapsed and and uh, 
um, uh, there was uh, there was all kinds of um, uh, um, controversy and disorder in, in in milk markets as as a as a consequence, um, and there was no legal recourse. Right, so these were not legally binding arrangements done on a handshake. Well, it's funny oh, you should say that because so, in the so, so so why can't why it, why can the marketing arrangements that work for every other commodity and most other places around the world why what's so special about Canada <laughs> the the productive environment in this country which precludes the possibility of using those effectively well, why can't gonna... why can't milk be sold through a, through a forward contract and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to I'm going to explore that with you because I wonder if there is a little bit of a difference between Australia and New Zealand. But one of the things that you mentioned, it actually is illegal for two suppliers to get together and do a handshake deal to fix prices. We have laws against that, but, yeah, but the supply management kind of formalizes but this, it. But this is this is uh, you know you're in the 1930s. This is this is not multinational corporations, right? This these are small. Uh, um, uh, um, family or multi-family run uh, processing plants right that, that dotted the landscape 80 years ago 90 years ago so the, the circumstances are much different but in terms of in terms of contracting production we certainly see this out west with uh, grains and oil seeds and, and, and beef you know um, uh, hogs what what's peculiar about what's peculiar about raw milk what's peculiar about chicken let me let me put this to you. It, it, I'm sure you're going to uh, challenge my arguments, but I feel like I should make them <laughs> because I I know that I know that if there was a dairy producer on the line with you, they would want me to make them make these arguments. Now, one of the things I would say that might be different about Australia and New Zealand is that they are island economies, and so they don't have this big mammoth of the United States sitting right south of the border that could outproduce and probably drive all of our guys out of the market. So I just want to plant that seed because we'll return to that. But I want to understand how Australia and New Zealand dismantled their supply management and why. And we can talk about some of the benefits that resulted in that. Because I think in a lot of your work, you say, if they can do it, we can do it. So what happened there? Well, okay. If we if we take Australia as, as the example here, um, uh, in the 1980s, uh, the Australian government and the New Zealand government too, they, they uh, uh, were uh, um, uh, <laughs> overspent and under-earned, <laughs> fiscal problems, and uh, uh, the the subsidization of exports from Australia no longer became uh, it became problematic for 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 because of its taxpayer burden. It also became a problematic from the as uh, there was a few high-profile studies done that indicated that uh, consumers in Australia were spending. Uh, millions and millions of dollars more than they would be otherwise if the, if the market was deregulated in terms of uh, uh, ascending uh, um, adhering to the um, uh, the the, uh, the, um, the the world trade organization agreement the, the GATT agreement that was put into force in 1995 uh, one of the conditions were that you had the, the country had to dis, uh, um, eliminate its export subsidies for mm -hmm. for dairy products, so there's there's a constellation of things uh, that uh, led to uh, um, a thinking about uh, the uh, the way in which the legal framework that uh, through which uh, dairy products were manufactured sold in Australia, and in 1998 uh, there was a vote among producers and they voted to deregulate it, hmm. 
so they uh, they scrapped um, uh, price controls at the farm level. They scrapped uh, some of the other administrative oversight. Um, uh, the export subsidies were, of course, had been eliminated, um, but compensation was paid over an eight-year period. So consumers, uh, uh, through I think it was an eleven cent per liter fee on 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 products sold, uh, financed uh, a, 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 a buyout system, uh, a buyout package valued at uh, it was one point seven four billion Australian dollars. And after 2008, the, that program came to an end. Let's and talk course, about it. Okay. And of course, that benefited some individuals yeah. and it imposed costs on others. And one of those, some of those, uh, the, the, the dairy producers that were the most capable remained in the industry, uh, but lots left, right? And um, uh, rather than using their, their scarce resources to produce raw milk, these were reallocated to the production of other goods and services. Let, let's talk through a couple of the examples here. We haven't talked about export subsidies at all. I was under the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we in Canada just produce for the Canadian market and we don't export. Am I mistaken on that? Well, uh, the, the opportunity to export is very circumscribed. There is opportunity for, for processors to import product, process it here, and then have it re-exported. Um, in terms of producing exclusively for the export market, that's, uh, that's an opportunity that is, has essentially vanished. It, on, across all the supply managed uh, products? It's, it's most, it's, it's, to my knowledge, it's, it's, most, uh, it's mostly dairy. I don't, I don't know the extent to which Canadian producers of eggs, for example, are supplying consumers in the United States or, or elsewhere in the world, or, producers of turkeys to what extent turkey production in canada satisfies a, a want of a foreign consumer um but that mark if it if if it does take place it's 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 trivial compared to the importance of the domestic market so why didn't they in australia then just say okay well we're not going to do export subsidies but we'll maintain supply management and just do a little more restriction with a little higher price why wouldn't that have been a consideration to do well, you're sacrificing the opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Australia is uh, much like producers in Canada. We're very much export oriented in, in agriculture. And if you, if you take Canada as a, and you compare it to Australia, you know, we've got uh, maybe 50% greater population, uh, very large geographic area. Uh, our important products, export markets are grains, oil seeds, and livestock. Uh, one way that we're different is that uh, dairy is also an important uh, source of export earnings in a, for Australians, not so in Canada. Huh. Can you quantify that? Because I guess if you, if you look at, at, as you said, we've got a 50% greater population, you could kind of get a sense of what the potential might be for our export market if we were to follow the same, the same pathway. Do you know what that number would be? I, what are we I don't. And, and okay. I don't. And it, and it really, it, it depends on the, on the purchasing patterns of final consumers. Right, so if we, we this we it comes back to this time and again, Danielle. Right, um, if it was really the case that final consumers really preferred products produced in Canada, what threat are imports? None. I'll, okay, <laughs> let me let me tell. There, 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 there's none. What 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 the, what the 
these what these border protections do is they protect domestic producers from domestic consumers. Consumers who, if they had the liberty, would choose to produce to consume goods offered for sale by others beyond this country. Right. That's what the it's not that the it's not the foreign producer that's going to put Canadian producers out of business. It's the Canadian consumer that's going to put Canadian producers out of business. Let me see if, again, if the Americans being so close to us offer a different environment that they're responding to, because I'm under the impression and maybe this is incorrect. I'm under the impression that there's a lot more agriculture subsidy in the U.S. and that they overproduce on milk. And if that is the case, that we need to protect, this would be the argument, protect our Canadian cons uh, producers so that we don't end up with dumping into the Canadian market, which would benefit American producers, maybe benefit Canadian consumers, yeah, but drive all our, our producers out of business. Is there an argument to be made there? Uh, well, somebody can't, you can't, somebody can't produce um, for an indefinite period of time at a loss. Right? Mm. Um, and um, if, if another jurisdiction is willing to subsidize the production of a good, then uh, as consumers in Canada, we should celebrate this, right? Let's say a Toyota decided to subsidize the, 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 uh, the, the manufacture of its, its cars in the United States. And rather than paying 40 or 50 or $70,000 for a Toyota, it's $5,000 because taxpayers are encouraging Toyota production. We'd celebrate here. Right. And the, and the resources used for the manufactured vehicles could be redeployed elsewhere, doing something to satisfy a, a, a want that's not currently met, maybe at a lower price or higher quality something. Right. Um, and it's the, and it's the same thing with with dairy, despite the fact that we have supply management in place. The number of dairy farmers in this country has gone down steadily over the years. Right, we have uh, about ten thousand left in the in the country. They're they're uh, most of them are located in Ontario and Quebec. We've got among the other four supply managed commodities, there's a few thousand. Right, in terms of keeping people on the farm, uh, if if you compare the situation in the 1970s, the number of producers to what it is today, lots of there's more people have left the industry that are current than which are, than the number that are currently in it. And what have these people done? Right. They've they've sold their businesses. They've reallocated resources to other productive uses and the resources that remain in agricultural production have been taken over by more competent, more more um, uh, uh, um, primary producers. Let me put this to you, because I think that we're sort of hitting on why it is so difficult for us to put the consumer interest ahead of the producer interest. I've seen respect for different industry surveys done from time to time. You know, who's always at the bottom is politicians. I think they're just under used car salesmen. Economists but, uh, are below that. I, we're, I we're, doubt we're, it. We're, we're, we're somewhere between, we're somewhere between the, the tarot card reader at the circus and the weather forecaster. That's where the economist is. But it probably won't surprise you that almost always at the top of the list is farmers, our food producers and small business owners. And so I think that, let me, bring in some arguments. And again, they may be anachronistic as well, because you're right, people are making the choice with the next generation to move into different occupations, to move into a more urban environment. And so you are seeing more consolidation. But there is almost a nostalgia for the family farm and being able to keep that small producer on their land, because when a dairy farm goes out of business, 
that also has implications for the family and the household yeah. and the homestead. And so you're not just losing a business. It's not, it's not just that transactional. You're using, losing a, a lifestyle. You're also uh, eroding the number of people in that particular community. I, th I think you want to be very careful. Again, remember the people involved. So these people who are selling their dairy business, um, uh, oftentimes they're selling the dairy business and they're taking up the production of grains and oil seeds. Huh. Right. So um, uh, the, the proceeds of the sale enables them to transfer from one line of production to another. So you're not uh, losing the farm. It's just being transformed into it, a different it, type it, of use. It, it's being transformed into a different use. So rather than feeding, rather than uh, growing your crops to feed your dairy herd, you're growing crops for uh, for human and, and animal consumption. Hmm. Right. And. And I also want to point out that remembering the people involved, uh, these the, the, the producers of these supply managed commodities, these are not easy commodities to produce. At least they weren't when I was younger. It dawned on me when I was preparing for this, um, for this conversation with you that it's been 40 years hmm. since I first earned my first dollar working off the farm, off my dad's farm. I worked for somebody else. I earned a dollar. And I uh, worked for a neighboring dairy farmer. Farmer. He was a World War II vet. It went through Italy in 1943. A very quiet hero. Um, loved working for him. Helped put in some hay. And and uh, 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 but there was one thing that 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 I, I think it clicked for me there. My interest in in dairy. And this was, he was milking cows. He didn't have a pipeline. And he had these surge uh, milking machines on a can. And he emptied the can into a bucket. My job every once in a while was to carry the bucket from the from the barn into the dairy. And I had to cross the gutter and, and go down into the dairy a couple of steps. And when I wasn't doing that carefully, he would remind me that that is where the money comes from. <laughs> Be careful, right? Uh, there's lots of activities that are that are fun and enjoyable on a farm, right? Um, but but dairy is uh, 24 7 365 uh operating a a, a, a a controlled environment commodity like uh, eggs or, or poultry it's very mechanized today but it requires a hundred constant attention it's very different compared mm -hmm. to growing a crop right you're, you're four weeks in the spring and you're four weeks in the fall harvesting and and uh, then you got 44 weeks to think about marketing your product mm -hmm. This this doesn't this doesn't happen with these supply managed commodities. So, it uh, it's not surprising in the least the the extent of the respect that one sees in a survey among among individuals. Do we respect dairy producers? Do we respect poultry producers? Of course. These these people are uh, they are hardworking and they and they are savvy business operators. Right to be to be successful in that in that business over a long period of time. That's um, it's uh, it's a testament to their uh, their entrepreneurial skills. Well, and it's a good point too that not everybody who leaves the dairy business leaves agriculture altogether. No. Let me ask you uh, on one more argument because again, this might be an old argument, especially now that we've got so much urbanization. But there used to be an argument that we don't want to save the family farm. We don't want to move to factory farms. I think was was the terminology, <laughs> and and maybe there's just a, an argument that needs to be made for economies of scale. Here, that here's the thing every farm is a factory everyone what is a factory a factory is a location where inputs are converted into outputs <laughs> that's 
definition of a factory. What the issue is that we don't like really big factories and we prefer smaller ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay. So we prefer a smaller factory, but the, the irony is that whenever we make decisions in the grocery store or the restaurant, the output from these small factories are not the ones that we choose. So, cause we are still price sensitive, especially on products that can't be differentiated. Maybe for tofu cheese, you might make a different choice if that, because that'd be a, a lifestyle choice versus regular cheese, but two different brands of cheddar, you're going to choose the one that's going to be cheaper. Uh, you, I, I think that's, that's, that's shaky ground, Danielle. Oh, you, you, that, that, that might be the case for your tastes and preferences, but there's oh. others, you know. They, they much prefer craft or a no-name brand or a particular, it might be a, a, a specialty uh, a cheddar manufacturer. Uh, what constitutes a differentiated product is in the mind of the beholder. Well, and it, I guess maybe that's the thing that I'm sort of struggling with here. Because as I was looking up milk, I, I gave the example of the four liter regular for four ninety five, but there was also a premium to one point five liter for four ninety seven. It yeah. does seem to me that it's really hard to even know how, what the prices would be in the absence well, of this we, kind of restriction. And and, and, we, and you don't, and you cannot. But what we do know is that it will be different, right? And it will be different to the extent that if the manufacturers, uh, the, the people who add value between, and including at the farm gate, the, the primary producer, all the way through the marketing channel, how they modify what they produce, how they produce, when they produce, in view of satisfying the want of a final consumer, right? So what demands in Canada among final consumers aren't currently being met? Okay. Is there a way that we can we can marshal uh, productive uh, resources to satisfy that demand at a profit? And I'm not an entrepreneur, but there are people who are, and they're <laughs> based on the purchasing patterns of consumers. There is a, a lot of opportunity to satisfy demand, and at a profit, if only they had the legal ability to do so. Let's talk few through a few of the things that happen in Australia so that we can see what um, might occur here. Because one of the issues you talked about is, and I think it's, a, was it a consolidation that occurred when you talk about the smaller farms going under? So you'd end up with the same amount of production, but just fewer people doing the producing, right. or did they? And this is what, in Australia, what happened, there was a consolidation and actually there was a reduction in the amount that was produced. Hmm. Uh, and, as over time and as individuals adjusted to the new circumstances, milk production in Australia has increased, huh. and, it, and it's and, it, and it's being it's being exported to uh, to satisfy the wants of uh, individuals in uh, in um, in the South Pacific. That's an important export market for uh, for uh, individuals in uh, in Australia. So, and it's a huge market. <laughs> There's millions of people there, um, and uh, but it, the. the it gets back to your question earlier, but well, it's an island country and there's a long distance and it's expensive and all of this is true, right? And ultimately, a, a business decision made on a dairy farm in Australia, if I'm, if I'm aiming to satisfy the want of a final consumer in, uh, in, uh, in a South Asian country, uh, what price are they willing to pay? What's it going to cost me to get it there? How much is it going to cost to process and manufacture the product? And at, at what price can I sell the raw milk to make this all possible, right? It, it, it starts with the final consumer and it works. It's, you work your way back. 
and that determines ultimately what somebody's going to receive for a for a for a primary product that they produce. So I what I'm hearing you say then is that you probably would see some kind of consolidation, but then as export markets developed, you might actually see growth. I think part of our problem in Canada is that we have have such a tied relationship to the U.S. We've looked at the U.S as being the end the end recipient of so many of our consumer goods when you look at the cross border trade that takes place there there hasn't been that much penetration on that many products internationally and so it's hard for us to see what might occur if we did have a more robust export market in these products what do you think might occur where would well, the well, opportunity well, here's, be? here's the question well why is it that that uh, that 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 that, um, uh, that uh, satisfying consumers in the United States is so attractive why is it no, easy, easy to get to. <laughs> it's easy that we, we 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 share common language. There's there's all kinds of uh, factors in the marketplace that that make it particularly appealing, and Canadians are in a very good position to satisfy those needs at a profit. It's more complicated, more costly, uh, the further away that you go, right? So, um, um, but in terms of uh, if there was a, a change in the legal framework and, and producers of supply managed commodities were, had greater liberty to uh, to use their resources as they saw fit and to sell to whomever they they wanted, um, that you would probably see uh, what you see in I, I suspect in in other areas, and that is that uh, uh, for some individuals uh, their choice will be very large scale production of a homogeneous mm -hmm. product, right? reduce the per unit costs by increasing the scale of output. Uh, and uh, that way you can, you can produce something uh, that a consumer wants at a low price. But not all consumers are like that, right? We, want, we also appreciate differentiated products. It might be the case that you have uh, uh, also a, a, a set of producers that are, that are selling to a processor under contract that uh, produce a, 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 a uh, uh, highly valued from the perspective of the consumer that generates a lot of return for small output. Maybe it's, maybe it's produced in a, in a particular way. You know, here's an example, you know, um, would be uh, if you do, were to draw a parallel with beer, you know, when mm. I was a, when I was a youngster, there's basically four kinds of beer in this country and there may be three manufacturers. Look at it today. You dig, deregulate that industry. Uh, and you deregulate the, the retail of it. And there's still some very large producers of beer, right? They're still making lots of money, um, but there's also a large number of smaller producers dotted throughout the country that specialize in something that's unique. Uh, what a great and, example. You know, and, they're, part and, they're, and they're all making, and they're all making money and they're, yeah. they're, and they're doing that because they're, they're, they're tapping into that latent demand. Right. Not everybody wants to drink 50 or blue or O'Keefe or Molson ale. Right. There's, right. There's, those four staples in 1979. There's people people have different preferences than that. And it's always you, changing. You know what? I'm glad you gave that example, because as we've been talking, I've been thinking, yeah, but if we were to have uh, the same kind of integration with our US and Canadian market as we do on other products, we don't do very much value added. We produce the primary product here and then we ship it off to the US for the value added. The example you just gave does give a bit of a counter argument to that. And, but, I, but do you think that would happen? I know, you end up I, with... here, here's, you were making fun of uh, uh, journalists a moment ago. Let, let's make fun of economists. My crystal ball is as faulty as everybody else's, right? I can't predict <laughs> the future. Um, so, but what I do know 
and, and I think this is this is this is probably universal knowledge. We all know this in our hearts and our minds that it would be different. Yeah. And it would be different. And the people who uh, ultimately would be the most successful are the ones that who are the most able to satisfy the wants of final consumers, right? And this yeah. is, it comes back to this time and again. The only way that you can create wealth for yourself is by first producing something for somebody else, right? And then using the proceeds of that sale to buy everything else that you wish to consume. It, removing these barriers to trade enables and production enables a division of labor and the allocation of resources so that we can more can be produced at higher quality and at lower cost it increases the the, the amount that's produced the quality of what's produced and it increases our consumption opportunities it makes us wealthier not poorer you've just given me the argument then that you could make that you would get consumers on board with and it would be to look around the world at all of the unique and interesting products that are made from all of the these base yeah. materials that we just don't have here and i think milk is probably the best example especially when you when yeah. you talk about industrial cheeses and the industrial uh, use of, of, of fluid milk but the, the difficulty there is that you have to travel Yes. To see that it, it, it's something that comes first hand. And um, quite frankly, uh, the the amount of times that you travel somewhere else and you're and you're investigating the dairy case or the poultry case is, you know, it just doesn't happen. But what does happen? You go to a different country and uh, you're at a restaurant and you order something that's rather innocuous. You know, OK, I'll, I'll have I'll have some uh, some chicken, for example, if you use one of yours. <laughs> and uh, and and you'll be in there and you'll be eating this and, and you'll notice this tastes different. There's something about this. It, it, this is it's a chicken breast. It's exactly the same as what we get in Canada, but it, it tastes different. Why is that? Well, um, in Canada, most of the, the 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 poultry that's processed is air chilled, hmm. right? So uh, uh, when it goes through the packing plant. Uh, the, the birds are eviscerated and they're, 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 everything's cooled down. In other parts of the world, uh, the carcasses are uh, put through a, a, a brine bath. Hmm. And that cools the carcass and the salt adds a little bit of different flavor to the chicken. And it's like, why is this not available in Canada? Right? And it's because the, 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 the processing is different, right? And, and you don't realize that until you're in the situation and I and quite frankly I don't think you're going you're going to convince many consumers by just showing them a picture. Yep. No, I it's think, I think that might be the strongest yeah. argument because I think that the price for a consumer is such a small amount that it's really the the choice issue that might be the it's, the largest sales factor. It, it's it, it it is. It is. And um uh, as we mentioned a, a, a moment ago that uh, you know the the cost of these of this regulatory framework in Canada, the costs are diffuse, right? Yes. It's a dime, it's a quarter, and but the benefits are highly concentrated, and there's and there's no easy out. Then let let me ask you why it is this is such a a, a burr under the saddle for so many of our trading partners. Why did we almost get? Why did we get into a trade war with the United States over this issue? Why is it a, a, that we had to put it on the table during the Trans-Pacific Partnership <laughs> negotiations? Well, again, again, you put yourself in the in the position of a of a dairy farmer in 
uh, I don't know, just, uh, you know, within driving distance of the, uh, of, of uh, the, the, the Windsor Detroit bridge, right? Milking thousands of cows and he sees high prices in Canada. And he's, and he's, and he's, in, and he's got low prices where he's at. When can I export? When can I export? He's, he's on the phone to his, uh, his, his, uh, his politician, right? I want this border open. I want to be able to have the opportunity to sell into this market, right? You were saying that you were pretty heavily lobbied a while ago, right? By some supply. I should mention that story, yeah, because yeah. I was in politics. I got called out to Calmar when I when uh, when our members of the political party I was in made a, a motion on supply management to bring it to an end, and so there was a pretty heavy lobbying effort. So there's a, a lot of money at stake, obviously. There and is. I, there is. In, in my case, uh, I witnessed it when I was in the U.S. I was I was visiting a dairy farm. And uh, the farm was so large, I don't know how many thousands of cows they were milking, but uh, I was at the barn and, you, and uh, you could drive several tractor trailers through one end and at the other end, the door looked like it was about this big. It was just a tiny little thing. <laughs> so this Canadian was down here that knew something about dairy and he was very blunt. When's that border open? When can I sell into that market? When? You tell me. Because I, 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 I can have a truck loaded and gone. Right. Um, well, let me put this to you because we're so much it now gets reframed in the COVID era, right? And all of us have watched tanker ships sitting or uh, this container ship sitting off the, the coast of ports, unable to be loaded. And we've heard of supply chain issues that occurred because of perhaps um, uh, the big the big landslide and flooding that happened in British Columbia. There is an argument to be made that there are certain strategic resources that are important for us to maintain a high level of ability to have a robust industry internally. And that, yes, maybe the Americans could produce all of our milk for us and, and we wouldn't need to produce it at all. But is that, a, is that desirable? Isn't there but we some- But we, that's, that's, that's a red, that's a straw man, right? There's always going to be, there's always, a, there will be a demand for locally produced products because that's what consumers want, right? Um, and apparently some people are willing to pay top dollar for that. So the fact, the, the argument that this industry is going to vanish from the, from the, the geography of Canada, I think it just a, wouldn't happen. Actually, that's just not going to happen. Um, um, but the, the, the issue of strategic importance, think about how lucky we are in Canada that there are, are alternatives to get to Vancouver besides the Coquihalla Highway and besides going through the Fraser Valley, right? Resources, in order for, to get product from where it is to where consumers want it to be, the transportation industry did a fantastic job rerouting trains mm -hmm. and trucks to the next best alternative, right? So south of Lethbridge or east, west of Lethbridge, you're going through the Crow's Nest Pass, right? There's an alternative. And going down through uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Washington State, Montana, getting getting around the where the disaster is, the what make what what provides resilience is not being dependent on a single source. What provides mm -hmm. resilience is being able to have access to multiple means of getting goods from one place to another, right? And it's the same in agriculture and agri-food. The the the, the 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 supply systems that are dependent on a single supplier are the ones that are the most vulnerable. We are so fortunate here that we, you know, when when the 
when the dairies were flooded, God bless all those people in, in you know that that were flooded out there, right? Resources were were reallocated, and and supply lines were furnished from from producers beyond that area. Yeah, right. That's that's where the resilience comes from. Is by having choice. I get it's it. By, okay, it's, it's so then let me choice. talk. Let me put this, um, because the numbers that you put on the table would probably be causing a lot of heartburn for those who are in the supply managed industry. Because if the estimate is that there's 35 to $40 billion worth of value and eight years of an 11 cent a liter premium to phase that's, out the Australian market. No, yeah, it only <laughs> generated less than 2 no, billion. I'm yeah, thinking there's going to be either enough. a much higher premium we'll have to pay for a longer period of time, or we're going to have to phase out any of these markets differently. So give us, tell, tell me the, the thought that you've given to if there was the political will, and I'm not saying there is because those because this industry has such a high lobby in Quebec that is very influential on federal politicians, it'd be very hard for me to imagine a circumstance where someone would wake up one day and say, okay, it's over. But if that happened, what would be the transition plan? I, I have no idea, but I do know it'll be a political decision, right? Yes. Um, the, the one exception, and, it, and it's sometimes brought up as, uh, as an example, is uh, when the Western Grains Transportation Act was, uh, was eliminated and the, and the crow rates were, were terminated, growers in Western Canada were, were paid out. I, I can't remember, it was 1.3 billion, 1.5 billion, depending on where they were located and the benefit they, they received from the from So the, just from a one-time compensation. There was a one-time compensation, but the, 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 one of the important motivators for that was that uh, there, the, the Crow's Nest Pass Agreement, when it was put in place in 1897, made very clear that the, that the Crow rates were to remain in effect in perpetuity. Huh. There's no wording in any of the enabling supply management legislation indicating that any of this is to last in perpetuity. Nobody has a legal obligation, I don't think. So it's, it's a, um, it, it, it's just, I think you can distinguish any potential payout from uh, if supply management imploded, uh, you can make a distinction between that payout and something and, and the termination of uh, the crow rates in, in Western Canada. I guess the difference being the actual cost of the quota. If you're paid up, I mean, I, I can see that the difference in the pricing that would materialize after you have an open market, perhaps you can argue that that itself mm -hmm. doesn't need to be um, compensated to the same level. But what about this, uh, this buy-in amount that you've, that you've paid yeah. the $46,000? What do you do there? Uh, this is, this is a, um, a vicious problem, Danielle. Yeah, it is. It's a vicious. And then, and, and even within the industry, right? So let's take an example of somebody who was allocated, who's still a producer who was one in 1970 or uh, in 70 with the other supply managed commodities that they got allocated quota for free. Mm -hmm. And they've it's appreciated over time. And uh, um, what about that? So could you have a model where you would give some some kind of payout based on how much you paid out of pocket for the quota. So somebody well, who there, got grandfathered there's, in. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's, one could conceive of just about any kind of scheme, right? Yeah. But there's only one taxpayer. There's only one consumer, right? The money has to come from somewhere. Government has no ability to create something out of nothing than <laughs> either you or I. It has to come from somewhere. 
And uh, in terms of uh, a transfer program, the choices are, well, it's either current taxpayers or current consumers, future taxpayers or future consumers, or we print more money and, we, and uh, the first recipients are those in, in the supply managed industries and not exhaust the alternatives. <laughs> that's, just, that's, where the, that's where the resources come from. So years ago, I did a conference with the Canadian Property Rights Research Institute, and we had Bill Stanbury in to make the argument that the supply management quota was essentially a property right because you've monetized the value and you've created a market where it can be bought and sold. And it's a, it's a pay to play. You have to have that purchase price. Government makes you. Um, purchase it. So it, there's an ethical issue in having to create this. So unlike the crow rate, there's this ethical, ethical issue is, in having is. to create a, a, a compensation scheme. So, so let's say the, uh, I don't know, a, a taxi medallion. You need, a, you need to have a permit to operate a taxi business. Do these be, people get compensated because of Uber and Lyft? Hmm. No, they didn't. But did the does the forty six thousand dollars go to the marketing board, or does the forty six thousand dollars go to another producer? Is it, it is it the, 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 oh. the, right? So it's, so it's an informal it, market. Well, I don't think that's the right word. Uh, the I would describe it as being uh, uh, the the um, uh, the provincial milk marketing board acts as the facilitating agency, right? It's the it's the it uh, it, it it brings the buyer and the seller together. Right. So what if you were to, I mean, because people make decisions on the basis of expectations. I wonder if you said, okay, at some prospective date in the future, this is coming to an end. Is that another ethical way of dealing with it? And then a whole bunch of decisions can be made in that 10 year period. It, it, it cascades, right? But it, it's the credibility of that statement. Is it going to end in 10 years? There's a lot of people in elected office that say a lot of things that uh, there's not much credibility. And, that, and, it's, and it would be the same here, right? It's, uh, the, and, and, and we talked a moment ago about, about the incentives, right? There's a tremendous incentive among current producers of supply managed commodities to lobby heavily against an end date because it, it has the practical consequence of reducing what people are willing to pay for the privilege of selling into an insulated market. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out, I, because I come from the political side, I recognize you're uh, an economist, but I, I do try to see <laughs> the realm of the possible. And I wonder if uh, the, the easier solution is to just uh, uh, try to create that entrepreneurship that we were talking about, the idea of having little artisan hobbyist farmers who are able to participate at a smaller level in some of the other supply managed industries, maybe that's the, the way you get a bit of a lever in here. Maybe you identify but, a certain amount of raw milk that you're allowed to participate in that's below that, a certain that, threshold. That, that, that's, uh, that's taking a finger out of a dam, right? Um, because uh, to the extent that that's successful, uh, it's more difficult to centrally choreograph the production marketing of mm -hmm. raw milk. You cannot control supply if you allow supply to be a certain part of it, at least uncontrolled. Right? Well, couldn't Alberta make the case that we're going to do it anyway? I mean, can one province say we might want to chart a different course than the other provinces? 
especially since there's this differentiation, it seems like Quebec already, I think we could very easily in Alberta make the argument that the amount of quota that we've been given hasn't kept pace with our demand and the, and the market. And so we're going to try to meet that demand in a different way, or does that just blow the whole system up? Well, these are, these are decisions that are made nationally, right? So, Hmm. um, uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a legal expert, but I suspect that um, it hasn't happened up to this point for a good reason. So interesting. It's just the reason I'm thinking is because you were the one who planted the seed with me about the microbrew beers, and every province has different regulatory environment for their brewing industry. And I just wonder if that might be so the seeds of, of some kind of way that we can get reform. It's just, you know, you've been writing about this for decades. I've been hearing about it for decades. And it's always such a, a fraught argument, pitting producers against each other and neighbors against producers. And it seems like there's got to be a way for all of us all to benefit on a path forward. So I don't, I don't know if there's any other examples we should be looking at for how other markets have transitioned away from this that might provide us some indication of whether we'll ever do it or whether I'll be talking to you no, 40 but, years from now no. and we'll still be talking about but, supply management. Who, who knows? But uh, <laughs> one of the thing, one of the things that is clear is that it, it, it does create, uh, uh, and, and I think your viewers have, have witnessed this this afternoon, um, it, it, it certainly is a, a wheelhouse of conversation for 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 econo- for economists, for political scientists, because it affects a lot of people, and it's and it's just not the dairy producers, it's just not the the poultry producers, it's all producers of all goods, it's all consumers of all goods, not just supply managed goods, but of all goods, and not just consumers in Canada, but it's consumers around the world. Right. Um, uh, the the fact that uh, that uh, we're we're limiting a division of labor, we're we're stifling entrepreneurship, we're we're creating scarcity purposefully. We are creating <laughs> these, these industries. We are creating scarcity purposefully to help some people. Right. Um, and and for the best of intentions. Right. The, to help improve farm incomes and to stabilize farm incomes, but it comes at such a cost. And it's borne uh, by, uh, by people everywhere. And um, to the, one of the wonderful things about economics is that it helps us understand this better. And it helps us realize that there are no easy solutions, um, but it, it, and it makes us very humble, right? I don't know what the I don't know what the future holds, and in terms of designing programs, I, I'm I, I'm reminded of Hayek's description of what economics is. Right, it's economics is the curious task of demonstrating to man how little he really knows about what he imagines he can design. That is right? such a great note. And and, it, and, it, and this and this and it's and it and it's four square right here with supply management. Right, so if we the, the, the consequences of interfering in the marketplace create identifiable winners and losers. And if we, if, if we were to remove these impediments, who knows what the world would look like, but it would be different. And the pattern of production and consumption would be different. 
And once you've created a market, it becomes a very difficult political challenge to try to undo it. Yep. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I sure appreciate it. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. I sure did, Danielle. I appreciate I sure, the opportunity. I, I certainly did. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> We've been talking Mine too. Dan Mine too. <laughs> I can tell. We've been talking with Daniel Leroy. He is an associate professor of economics at the University of Lethbridge and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 